Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 115 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and I recently had the opportunity to speak on the Business of Podcasting panel at Startup Week Columbus. And if there's one thing I noticed, it's that a lot of people out there are interested in starting their own podcast but aren't sure where to start. So we've decided to put together a podcast startup package with everything we've learned about building and growing a podcast to help you get there. You can pre-register for the Conquering Columbus podcast startup package now by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26, where we interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high flying VC backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa. Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire 
to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Matt Wall joining us, and Matt is the president and CEO at Columbus Collaboratory, a rapid innovation firm that works with companies to solve complex cybersecurity and analytics challenges. And before joining the Collaboratory, Matt worked in a variety of management roles for several firms, and he earned his degree from The Ohio State University for Computer Science and Engineering, and we're very excited to have him here today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Matt. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing. You know, I, I listened to the episode with Peter Kite uh, not too long ago. I don't remember exactly when it was, and I was fascinated with this story. Uh, and it was really a great example of real entrepreneurism, you know. And uh, I think that what you guys are doing here with this show is uh, it's a great idea. I'd love to see you do something more with it. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate that. It was funny. You know, Pete, he was real specific in what he, he said. I don't want to talk about the shiny all the good things that happened. I want to talk about yeah. how hard it was and all the bad things that happened. So that's kind of what we try and dig up here on the show more often than not. But kind of like to kick it back to start, maybe talk a little bit about childhood, family growing up, siblings, that sort of thing. Kind of what led you to Columbus? Yep. Well, I was born in Columbus. I was actually raised in uh, a rural community in southeast Ohio. Uh, now, I had family on my father's side in Florida, so we used to go there regularly in it. I love traveling down there, down in South Florida. It really kind of inspired my interest in, in travel, I think, later. If you would have gone back in a time machine, you'd have probably found, found me reading, designing, or building something. I was a builder. I love building stuff. I can remember envisioning myself at a young age running a business. I think that might have been my grandfather's influence. But we weren't a family, really, of any means, a very modest means, average middle-class Midwestern family. I was the first to get a degree in my family after my mother, who went back in her 40s uh, to get her degree in education. So, You mentioned your grandfather was kind of an inspiration there. What did he do, and, and what did his path look like? Yeah, well, he was an entrepreneur. Um, when he came back from World War II, he started and ran several businesses. And entrepreneurism was really what raised my grandparents' standard of living out of poverty and into the middle class. And that, that really made an impression on me. I mean, he, had, he built his own houses with his own hands. I can remember as a really young kid uh, helping to nail some two-by-fours up. We, we were a family of, of hard workers, and he was a great example for us. So I think that kind of inspired in me this notion that, you know, wow, if, if he can do it, then maybe I should think about doing that too. I remember at a very early age wanting to work, uh, and so I, you know, I had the typical paper route thing, but I remember ordering things in the back of comic books and having them shipped to me so that I could go around the neighborhood and try to sell them to the neighbors. And, um, and I worked on a farm when I was, uh, at a really, as, as soon as I was eligible to, to, to go, you know, work, and then when I became 16, I, you know, had a job. and an office supply store, and um, there's one job in particular that's kind of interesting. So I was actually an ambulance dispatcher. And I don't know, it was something about how I really loved helping people. Uh, but there's nothing uh, like the voice of a crying, hysterical person on the other end of the phone that gives you clarity of thought, you know, when, you, when, you, when they need your help. And, and so I guess that uh, 
that job was an experience I had early in my life that uh, helped me think about calm under pressure, if you will. So. Yeah, a couple of interesting things that kind of stick out to me in terms of that story. Like, I think a lot of people might take that panic and they kind of panic themselves. And I think maybe it's quality, an early quality of a leader, somebody who can take times of urgency like that, think calmly and stay composed and then, you know, have clarity on, on how to act. Um, and then you mentioned, you know, working on the farm and also building things, but also wanting to sell things. It's like the perfect trifecta of learning work ethic, being dangerous and being able to build things and be able to sell things. So you put those together I and mean, you have your own little, your own business in yourself. So it's interesting to hear that story kind of unfold um, from that early of an age. So college time comes around. Do you have any siblings at that point? Did you mention that already? Or? I do. I have a, I have a, a sister and I have a half brother. Uh, my sister, um, just like my mother, actually, I went back to school a little later in life and got her degree. She's an OSU grad as well. Uh, congratulations to her. Yeah, my sister and I are about 13 years apart. So, you know, we're, we're far enough apart that the, you know, I was part of trying to help almost raise her a little bit, if you will. Uh, so. Yeah, and so let's jump into college, Ohio State. Uh, when did you go? What made you decide on, on Ohio State University? Well, I went to University of Kentucky my first year. So I am a wildcat. But um, I realized uh, that I couldn't get the engineering degree that I really wanted unless I transferred to OSU. So I came back to OSU, and I, uh, I went to school here. Uh, I got my computer science engineering degree. I worked the entire time through college. So I put myself through college. I worked two to three jobs. And truthfully, I worked so much. My work was probably a little more of my priorities than my schooling was. It's tough to work that much and still, you know, be a top-notch student. But it was really important to me that while I was going to school that I worked in areas that were very related to my professional interests. And you know, software development and computer science engineering were two areas where I had real passion inspired by my interest in electronics and then which became amateur radio and I could talk about that if you're interested. So I went to Ohio State and got my degree there, worked through college, had a couple of jobs during school with some companies and I also began to develop my own software product which I had later commercialized in my first company uh, right towards the end of my uh, college. What were some of those roles that you held? You know, you mentioned how you wanted to make sure they were really specific. What were some of those different jobs you did? <laughs> so I was, a, I was a computer operator at University of Kentucky. That was when they had mainframes. Uh, they had, it, was the, it was a big IBM 360 mainframe. You pulled out these giant drawers and they had these disc packs in them and there was an entire room full of cabinets that were six feet tall. And that was for what they called core memory back then for computers. And it was actually an iron ferrite core that they wound with wire and the entire room's worth of memory capacity was three megabytes. <laughs> I then went to Ohio State and I did the same thing. They were on an Amdahl 470, for those of you that uh, know the mainframe world. And I did a similar, uh, uh, I performed a similar role. And then I got involved as a software developer in a couple of tech companies in town. One of them that I was uh, developing software on a Commodore 64 that was later part of a product that got sold to company called Ashton Tate, which you guys may not recognize, but they were the makers of DBase2, which one of the, was one of the real early database programs uh, that was out there. So I tried to work in software development and computer operations-like roles. And it always blows my mind how big computers were back then. I mean, you mentioned three megabytes, and now I've got a phone that can hold 300 gigabytes, right? 
So the, the speed of advancement with computer science is, is incredible. Um, and with your degree, where did you go from college with computer science and engineering? Kind of what were some of your first roles? And, and how, you know, how involved were you with that inside that uh, advancement in that industry? Yeah, so this was a fascinating time. So this was right when microprocessors were really starting to go mainstream. So they had, we'd, make, we'd made the conversion from analog to digital, had the transistor out there. Now they were putting transistors in silicon in increasingly denser and denser footprints. And, and so that was kind of driving the, the development of microcomputers and the non-mainframe revolution, if you were. If you would. So, you know, you had the TRS-80 and the Commodore 64 and then the Apple II. And so these started to, um, these started to develop and they, um, they generated a lot of interest in the market and networking technologies started to come about as well. At the time, you know, TCPIP, which is a protocol that the internet is based on, was actually contending with something called token ring, which is a standard I think that IBM had advanced at the time. But I was really, really interested in the transformation that was going on with computing because it was going mainstream, it was accessible to everybody. You could, if you could program in basic or some simple language, you could, um, you could make a computer do something and everything was something to be automated. I mean, every process was a candidate to be automated. So all you had to do is learn how to develop software. And I had this sense, and I, I know a lot of people did at that time, that there was really something big happening you know, computers were, were going mainstream and there was really an opportunity now if you understood the field and you understood how to develop software to drive new sources of productivity and frankly, become an entrepreneur in doing so. And when you realized that, kind of how did that shape your career path and, and what steps began to unfold so you could capitalize on that? It, a wonderful thing happened. When I was in high school, I walked into my physics class and one day, and there was a brand new shiny Apple II sitting there. And my physics teacher was smart enough to pick up on the fact that I wasn't thrilled with physics, but I was really enamored with this computer. So I was always in front of it, trying to play with it and you know, learn about basic. What is basic? I would write programs and print them out or print out you know, the, the results, make the screen do cool things. And he said to me, he said, I'll make you a deal if you teach uh, the folks in the class, how to program that Apple II computer, I'll let you out of the physics curriculum. And so I did exactly that. I spent as much time as I could learning that device, teaching the others in the class how to develop in basic. And that inspired my whole interest in the field. And the thing about computer science was, you know, I'm a very auditory visual learner, not a book learner as well. So software development, computer programming really fed my brain what it was really looking for in the way of feedback. You could write a program, it would draw something on the screen, your brain would say, wow, that's the visual feedback that tells me, wow, you know, something really uh, interesting happened here. And so that was really what led to my, uh, my interest in the field. And it was a hobby for me at first. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, my hobby became my professional interest and the basis of my career. Yeah, and, and so what were some, maybe some specific roles, let's kind of get granular, before the collaboratory that you were taking on, and can you kind of walk us through maybe just the key roles that you were, you were in and, and what you were doing there? Yeah, sure, I'll, so I'll, I'll try to do this quickly. So 
I started my last year of college, I actually took a professional position with Rockwell International. I was a systems analyst on the B-1 bomber program. And you might not know this, but the south end of the entire runway of Port Columbus was all a string of buildings that Rockwell owned and operated. Oh, well, they operated it. They didn't own it. I think they leased it from the Air Force. And you actually had to take a bus from one end to the other. It was so long. But it had one of the most advanced titanium metalworking shops in the country. And there was fascinating. They made the B-1 bomber, the uh, space shuttle, and the Minuteman missile. So I was a systems analyst for them, and I learned quickly just how complex systems and, and large companies could be. For example, you had to spend a year and a half writing the requirements to change the systems before they could actually implement the, implement the changes. And what I learned through that experience was, boy, this is not something that I want to do because I'm looking to make an impact in a shorter period of time. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's just not, wasn't a great fit for me. So I was developing software in school. I decided to form a company. And so I partnered up with my friend. Uh, I, uh, he designed some hardware. We packaged the software and the hardware together, and we sold it to a Japanese radio manufacturer. And this was when they had taken amateur radios and they had put microprocessors in them, so now you could control them remotely over a serial interface, which I thought was just the coolest thing in the world. Well, once we collected the checks, I realized that I was really good at writing software, but I didn't know the first thing about business because I didn't really know what to do with it. So uh, after I thought about it and spoke to my partner about it for a while, we decided to shut the company down which, because I didn't want to spend the rest of my time you know, spending the money that I had earned to try to figure out what to do in business. And I decided at that point to dedicate myself to learning business skills. And so I took uh, a couple of positions. Um, one was with a tech company. Uh, where I was a product manager, uh, another, and then I uh, jumped on board the telecommunications uh, bandwagon when I joined Lytel. And um, and I'm trying to get around no. to your question here. And and I remember walking in one day at Lytel, and uh, the vice president brought me in his office, and he said, "I got good news and I got bad news." And he was kind of an imposing figure. I had to let him drive the conversation. He said, well, I'll tell you the bad news first. I said, what's that? And he said, well, there's nobody left in your department. We've laid them all off. I said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, we decided to keep you. And when they decided to downsize it, Lytel, I realized that I was going to have to find a way to insert myself into where value was being created in that company. And so I found a way to pivot myself into the marketing group and to grab a hold of a couple of products and work really hard to try to drive revenue on those. And so that was the beginning of my transition into business. And as I succeeded there, then I got into product development roles. As I did that, I started to build business cases on uh, technology deployments. And then the finance people saw that I could do financial analysis on technology and they asked me to join the M&A group where I then started to learn how you do acquisitions because the telecom industry was going crazy at the time. You know, Wall Street was shoveling money at these companies because all you had to do was uh, rent fiber, drop a couple switches and some optronics on the ends of it, and you could drive huge amounts of cash flow, and then they would finance their acquisition of other companies. So that was kind of my tra uh, career trajectory is in through marketing and then finance and M&A, and then I started to get opportunities in general management. And um, you know, in the last 
10, 15 years, I've tried to get some exposure to investing in small companies and what it's like to sit on boards and some of those things. And a couple of unique points in, throughout that story that kind of jump way back to the beginning when you first created that first product. Did you identify a need for this in, in the area? Did you just come up with the product on your own and then say, okay, now let's try to sell it? How did that work for you? Yeah, um, well, because I was so enamored with electronics and, and actually amateur radio at the time, I just thought it was the coolest thing. You could build a radio, you could build an antenna, and you could talk to somebody halfway across the world. Um, I, uh, so I was, I was playing around with that, that, that technology, and then when they added microprocessors to it, I was really uh, intrigued by the notion that you could control it remotely. And so I started inventing applications uh, for, for the radio that once you could control it via a graphical user interface would make new, you know, capabilities available. And that was really, it was a little bit of starting with the technology first and working backwards, which is exactly the wrong way to do it today. <laughs> but at the time, that's how I stepped into it, was I learned the technology and then I tried to start envisioning what, would the, what were the applications that I could make possible now that I could control the thing over a distance. And you sold a few of them, or just one to that Japanese no. company that you dropped? No, out? just to just to the company. They placed an order for I don't know a few hundred copies or something like that. A couple of variations on it. Okay, and then I want to talk about you know a little bit about a computer science engineering guy going into marketing. Yeah, and what that experience was like for you, because I'd imagine you had to do some quick learning on your feet. So talk to me a little bit about that process, how you. I mean, what were you doing to test yourself out, and how did you improve? Yeah. So the first thing I did was I picked up a couple of products as a product manager that nobody else really wanted to spend time on. And in the telecom game, it was largely a pricing exercise. You know, the, the market was held by three incumbents, AT&T, MCI, and Sprint, and there was a pricing umbrella that all the challengers could exist underneath. So all you had to do is offer a 20% discount to the incumbents and you could take all the share in the world you wanted. So it was really about the specific services that you offered to business and then pricing them at the right competitive discount. So as an engineer, I got involved there. I started learning how pricing was done. And as I was learning how pricing was done, I started doing competitive analysis. And I started learning what does it mean to um, to try to compete on price versus quality versus features. And I, I surrounded myself with other, I was, I was surrounded by other people that, you know, were doing marketing work, so I learned from them. And, and then, frankly, what I did was I went after opportunities while I was in that position to try to lead in some of the new product areas. There was one in particular where the FCC had regulated uh, you know, a change in how 800 services worked, and so I offered to lead that area, and that opened up some whole new opportunities for me. And, and so that was how I, you know, worked my way into marketing and, and learned from those people how is marketing really done. And from a broad stroke of point of view, as you continue to progress your career through these pathways and open yourself up to new avenues, new challenges, what was your mindset going through that? And then how were you learning those skills? You know, if you weren't just taking on those additional responsibilities, for example, something like finance, was that something that you'd spend your evenings and weekends focusing on working on? And, and if you were, and you're spending your weekends on something with the focus, I want to be as successful as possible, or was it I'm just enjoying this so much, let's keep rolling with it? First of all, I worked for somebody that was tough, tough executive. And there was no room for trial and error with with this individual. So I knew that I had to study up 
in order to be pretty, um, uh, I guess, facile with financial statements and valuation techniques and, and all the things that went into that. So I, I guess I dedicated an awful lot of my spare time to learning the things that I didn't know. And then I worked a lot with folks that would teach me on the job, you know, this is the way we look at valuation. So I can remember, you know, uh, buying courses on the side where I think AICPA was one, in fact, where I learned about business valuation and um, I sat with the finance people where they taught me, um, they taught me how to model it. And I think I built a reputation as somebody that was just willing to dig in, honestly. And they noticed that because this was a high growth company and they didn't have lots of time to bring, you know, new folks in, train them up. I mean, we were, we were growing really fast. And it's, it's funny, in some ways, there were probably other people on paper that may have been more qualified than I for some of the jobs that I took. But I showed the drive and the willingness to just dig in, and I made sure that I didn't let them down if they gave me a shot. And so that's what I practiced a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, in a way, it really shaped your career the fact that you were willing to go about and and try new things and push yourself and and move into these different um, positions so after that where do you go and how do you get involved with the Columbus Collaboratory yeah so we're gonna fast forward a lot of years here <laughs> um, I was doing some work for a company on the West Coast and a friend of mine gave me a heads up that they were recruiting for the CEO job for the collaboratory and it, I looked at it and at first, you know, I thought, well, this seems fairly complex. I don't know if this is the right thing, but as I really internalize it more and more, I realized that they were trying to do something very, very different, very unique. And you know, there, there are only so many chances you get in your career to do something that's truly, truly unique, truly different. And I wanted an opportunity to be part of building something here that, frankly, I couldn't find any place else in the country where they had done it. And it just happened to be in two areas that I love, you know, cybersecurity and advanced analytics. I mean, analytics is powering the, you know, in, in AI, the next phase of competition in business, cybersecurity is as represents an existential imperative for businesses today. So both were areas that were technically very, very interesting to me. And I said, hey, you know, I think I'll, I'll, take, a, I'll take a look at this thing. And so I got involved in the process and they recruited me. And I remember joining on my first day. I walked in <laughs> and half the lights were off. I was employee number one, there were no employees. And three days after I started on the job, I had my first board meeting. And he said, welcome aboard, what do you want to do? And from that, we built a plan, and we built a strategy, we built a team, and we've got a really neat little company now. So let's get more granular into that, because I think it's very interesting, those three days, what's going through your mind at that point, and then, you know, I think a lot of people might struggle between starting from nothing and trying to make it to something. You know, a lot of times you can put a plan in front of somebody, and really smart people can execute on a plan, but it takes a really... Um, unique type of intelligence to create something into a plan. So what did you spend your time doing over those couple days and, and what was that thought process like? Well, some of it was structural stuff. I mean, people need a structure to operate within. So that's simple things like, what is an organizational structure even going to look like for a company like this? 
and what are the main initiatives that we're going to try to test out in the beginning. So I thought about the structure, I thought about the kinds of people we were going to have to bring in, and I also thought about whether or not, or not whether or not, I thought about confirming with the board what some of the key criteria were that we had to meet in order to launch the company and get it off the ground. And of course, a financial plan. I mean, you know, you have investor money here, but unlike a lot of VC-backed firms where you may start with an idea and a concept and a forecast and all that, and then the investors invest against it, there was no financial plan to invest against. So we had to create one that would say, okay, if we focus on these things first with this organization and these outcomes, this is a first crack at what a budget might look like, how we would spend the money and how much we would need. So I wouldn't say I did a multi-year forecast, but we did actually try to lay out a hypothetical for how could that money be spent. But the important thing was is that put a box around this so that we could start to have a conversation about what we wanted to change. It wasn't the right thing, but it was something to shoot at. And it also allowed me uh, to bring people in who could look at the plan as well and start to you know, iterate around how can we make it better, how can we change it, et cetera. Yeah, and, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about raising funding for the collaboratory, and you mentioned, you know, you deal with a lot of corporate companies. Do you think your experience at Rockwell helped at all in that situation? I mean, you talked earlier about dealing with larger companies that have long timelines, um, and, you know, how is that process compared to maybe some of your smaller company experiences? So I don't think the experience with Rockwell helped at all. I was, yeah, I was really... I was really young and naive in those days, um, and it was a purely technical role. I think some of the uh, work I did in finance and M&A was really important. I think, frankly, some of the work I did with some local angel-backed tech startups was very, very helpful as well. Because understanding the investor mindset and how value gets created, you know, what's the hypothesis for value creation, was something that I felt was important to be able to communicate. You know, they had some very specific aspirations they wanted fulfilled, but of course along the way, it has to make financial sense. So I had to put that story together, and I think some of that is an intersection between some business planning, some financial forecasting, and investor psychology and um, return. For those listening who don't have a good idea on the collaboratory and like what it is, what the mission is, and what you guys do, yeah. what did that look like? from the idea that brought you in to um, what you ended up forming in that board meeting to what it is today? Well, I think we have stayed true to what the original intent was, which was the founders said, we believe that we can use collaboration to bring companies together and generate synergies in areas like analytics and cybersecurity. And make themselves better in the process. So in, uh, read that as accelerate innovation outcomes. While doing that, at the same time, I believe the founders believed that they could attract talent to the region and they could raise the visibility of Central Ohio and Ohio as a destination for tech innovation. So that was really the impetus behind the company. And we stayed very true to that when, you know, during my first board meeting into this day. We are very much aligned around that purpose. Now, how you get to that purpose was where the debate was. And there were a lot of things we could do. I mean, our opportunity space was unlimited. 
We could have become a training company. We could have become a sourcing company. Um, we could have just been a reseller of other technologies. We could have been a pure consulting company. There's just a huge number of choices. And so I chose to position us as a portfolio of products and services. And from an investor standpoint, to try to make sure that we were providing our founders with options along the way. So that as they learned where value was being created in the company, I wasn't foreclosing anything for them. Um, and we were returning value along the way. So I guess to go back to your question, I think we stayed true to the purpose. We started with an initial structure and then we iterated around what what is a deeper look at products and services and frankly problems that we can address and we validated that with the board regularly as I brought more people in who were subject matter experts in those areas. Yeah, and, and so what's the company look like today maybe in terms of number of staff and you know different departments kind of what you guys are working on? Yeah, it's 30s of people with contractors is probably up around 40. Um, we uh, will add some significant staff over the next few years as we're growing. See, one of the things I haven't mentioned yet was what was important to the founders and to the board was that they create a sustainable company. They didn't just want a four-year project they invest in and then they disband. They wanted to leave behind an asset in the region. And so that meant we had to create a for-profit business. So we're not a 501c3. Uh, we are a, we're not a research entity. We are a for-profit company. But we're a for-profit company for primarily for the purpose of trying to create an ecosystem that makes the company sustainable so that we're bringing back the benefits to the original founders as well as to the collaborators that we're working with in our ecosystem. And that's an ever-expanding number of companies. So I think I can be slightly slow in these contexts sometimes, but to bring it all together and, and talk it out loud with you make sure that I understand in full context. So collaboration from this sense means that we're bringing in both the resources, knowledge, and capital from these major corporations in Columbus. We're bringing them to an epicenter, and then we're starting to build a business model around that with products and services that we can both deliver back to those companies, but then sell to outside companies to deliver even more value and then continue to grow. That's right. That. That's right, because these companies are you know, very mature, very sophisticated companies, and we're trying to help them address contemporary problems in these areas. Well, the logic was, the broader market should be able to benefit from some of those solutions as well. So we formed a technology solutions company. We build products and services. And we try to learn from how those solutions have uh, benefit with uh, the companies that we were founded by. And then we turn around and try to um, package those in uh, offerings that we can make available to a broader set of companies. And are those companies similar in size and complexity to the current companies in the collaboratory, or are you targeting, you know, maybe smaller or larger businesses? Probably not many larger out there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say we're going higher end. It varies a little bit. I would say at the current companies in slightly down market a little bit. I mean, there is a there is a uh, segment of companies in the mid-market and in the lower-end enterprise who I think really understand what needs to be done and they may not necessarily have either the know-how or the tools or the mandate or 
you know, some, something else that is necessarily driving them. And what we're able to offer is to advance their maturity very, very rapidly because we can import things that we've learned and tools and, um, and know-how um, into engagements that we can provide to them that help them jump from point A to point C, if you will. Now, I'm assuming that these different products and services are across a different breadth of revenue structure. So I'm assuming some are SaaS, some are one-off. Is that is that correct? Yeah, we have uh, so we have services engagements where we do in the analytics area. We do uh, prototyping, analytics, uh, model development. We also do some assessments. And on the cybersecurity side, we do something uh, in the um, we, do, we we conduct exercises uh, that test a company's resilience or ability to detect certain kinds of threats. But we also have software tools that we've developed ourselves. We even have one where we are, have a partnership with a company. Some are SaaS delivered. Some are delivered via on-premise mm -hmm. um, solution. Recently did a school project on Equifax. I think they could have oh, used, yeah. uh, used some of your services. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just a little bit. Well, um, it's not an easy thing. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds you know, I just need some more cybersecurity. Let's throw a bunch of people at it. It's very complex. Mm -hmm. It's a moving target. I was just reading today in the paper about, or in the news, about a new threat that's uh, emerging in the banking sector around ATMs. So it's just a, it's a constant moving target. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I think it was on TED Radio Hour or something, centered around cybersecurity. And I think they had a guy on there that was a little bit of a naysayer, but he was suggesting that and this is completely off topic, so apologies for that. But he was suggesting that years from now, it'll probably be common that we lose the entire internet for a week or two to cybersecurity issues and threats. Is that something that you see coming down the pipeline? I, I, I don't know how to possibly even envision that. I mean, it's sure, I would say theoretically, there's so much resiliency and redundancy built into it. Maybe a, a bigger, Maybe another way to look at it would be, do we think we could have a major segment of our economy's infrastructure hit, adversely affected? Yeah, affected, yeah, I think it's possible. The bad guys, unfortunately, collaborate more effectively than the good guys do right now. So what we have to do, they're out innovating us. So what we have to do is actually use collaboration to innovate and keep pace with them. That's part of what we're doing at the collaboratory, is to figure out, how can we apply the same dollar of spend and security and have greater security and protection that results from it? Because there's just only so much money you can throw at this problem. Where do you think the nature of that uh, dilemma that you just described kind of stems from? Is it from the capital sources that are involved with, like you said, creating something like collaboratory versus the capital that is involved with people who are doing the bad things out there with cybersecurity. Why is there only a limited amount of funding for cybersecurity? Oh, I guess I guess it could be one, I guess that would make a little bit more sense to me, but I guess my question is more along the lines of why do you think that they're able to collaborate more efficiently? Do you think mm. it's because is there capital that's being pumped oh, into that area? Or? No, actually the, uh, the uh, I, I think it's because the adversary is can be more agile. You know, they're not necessarily large companies that are having to organize. I think we've got to, we have to recognize that we are um, trying to defend against an adversary that is more agile and doesn't have the same amount of overhead. 
So following from that, I mean, what does the future look like for you guys? What other things, you talked a little bit about the projects that you're focusing on right now. Um, is there anything that you see changing within the next five, ten years, both with the collaboratory and personally? What does your vision look like over that time span? Well, I, I, I uh, am very set on building the sustainability that the, uh, the, the founders intended. I think that's critical. I also want to see us really do some uh, really important things in changing the economics of cybersecurity for, for some of our companies and accelerating their innovative outcomes through analytics. I think collaboration is such a, it's an easy thing to say, it's a harder thing to do, um, but I do believe in it. And I think that we can, we have the opportunity to establish that it is a valuable tool for building, you know, uh, companies of tomorrow. So that's something that I'd like to do. We might take on a, we could take on a new area, I could imagine. Um, we don't have a mandate to do that yet, but you know, cybersecurity and analytics are going to have their own you know, maturity cycle, and someday it may be, um, may be the case that there's another area for us to look at, and so we'll look at that. Do you see your guys getting yourself getting more focused in one particular area rather than kind of spreading yourself across a variety of different things like you're doing right now to become... Um, stronger in that area, or do you think that you'll be able to continue to build the company around all these different outlets and be successful in all these different areas? That's hard to say. We're awful young right now. We're only three years old. Mm -hmm. I think we're we're trying to understand the how the business model can be scaled, and uh, what the economics of the different markets that we address and and are, and uh, how the sustainability gets driven and how all the members and the collaborators we work with are deriving value. So I think all of that's a bit of a work in process. And I guess one of my questions I have here is we're kind of closing in on the end is that, you know, in Columbus, I think we have a unique environment for collaboration. I think that a lot of companies in Columbus are very uniquely posed in a situation where they're willing to really engage in those sorts of things. Do you think that the Columbus Collaboratory could have found similar, I guess, success. It's young, but you guys have some success early on. Um, similar success in another city, maybe in Ohio or in another part of the world or country. Do I think the model will work in other geographies? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think Columbus has got some unique culture to it. Central Ohio has a unique culture to it that has made this um, more easily realizable. And um, the size of the city is just about right. I mean, we're not so big, you know, we don't have six million people where it's just so big to get something done or collaboration would happen exclusively around a vertical market sector like, you know, in uh, bio or health or something like that. So we can do the cross-industry collaboration. We're also not so small that you can't get to a critical mass. So I think we're just about the right size and we got the right culture. Sure, I think that this could be done in other geographies successfully. I don't know whether or not we would replicate this model deliberately as a business strategy, but we'll definitely go outside of the central Ohio area. Perfect. And I think that's a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show. It's centered on a theme here on Conquering Columbus, uh, Live Uncomfortably, if you've heard it. And not telling you too much about it, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, well... Like many entrepreneurs and people in business, I've had my share of successes and I've had my share of failures. The thing that I'm learning is that it, it has a lot to do with 
how you handle the failure and, and how you respond to it and what then. So when I think about that phrase, living uncomfortably is not just about doing something that is uncomfortable for you, but it's about embracing the uncertainty associated with entrepreneurism and associated with building great companies and accepting that you can't control all the things that may determine your destiny, but if you try your best and you accept that the outcome is the outcome, you learn from it and you move on to the next thing. And I think those are the people that build up real muscle and you know, being great entrepreneurs. Some of the greatest entrepreneurs have failed and created great companies from that. So that's what it means to me. I really like that answer, Matt. And I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Thank you a lot for joining us today. We really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks for listening. And if you like that episode, make sure to give us a like, share us on Facebook. That was Matt Wald, CEO and president over at the Columbus Collaboratory with a lot of great and interesting stories on his career and the collaboratory here. Check out all our links in the show notes. We'll talk to you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26, we interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high-flying VC-backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you 
you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.